Well, let's get started. We are going to pick up where we have left off. I want to start, before we get too far, I want to look at Psalm 103. We've read this every single week, and I want to read it again today, but I want you to read it with me. All right, ready? Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Okay, Paul. So here's the thing. This is what you need to understand about Paul. It doesn't matter how good he can see or any hear. It does how fast he moves. He's always a dollar short and a day late. It doesn't matter. You know, it's it's kind of like when you get in a contest with a bunch of guys and maybe you got to shoot a rifle at a balloon. You know, and everybody on your team hits that balloon, but one guy. Who was that? I, Paul, do you remember who it was? I forget. Oh, okay. Oh, wow, Paul, light in church. There we go. Okay, Paul, let's start again. Ready? Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. There's a table there. Forget not, or, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's going to be a good day. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, we got to think about this. When we read a passage like this, do we believe that it's true? Do we accept it as the Word of God, living, breathing, moving, all of that, or do we accept it as simply words on a page, and in this case, words on a screen? Because that's what it comes down to. As, you, as we have been developing this series, and we've been building this very slowly, brick upon brick, is the idea is, are we going to take God at His Word, at the character of who He is and the expectations that we should have of Him, or are we going to simply look at this as nothing more than some religious exercise? Because when it says, forget not his benefits, we forget them all the time. He heals our diseases. He forgives our iniquities. You know what the problem is? Is that we have no problem accepting forgiveness. It doesn't matter what we do. It seems like, oh, no big deal. I'm under grace. God will forgive me. It doesn't matter what's going on. But when it comes to the other things of God that, that David just talked about, it's like, well, I don't know if that part's true or not. We'd never say that, but that's how we act. We walk around defeated. We walk around with our heads down. We walk around, instead of walking as, as the sons of God, as children of the King, as the ones with the authority on the earth given by God, that He is the head and we are the body seated with Him at the right hand of the Father, we walk around as that, this pious individual worshiping a God whose only goal is to drop a hammer on us. That's what we walk around as. But what happened to the confident expectation? David wasn't writing this arbitrarily. He was singing this as a psalm to, to the Lord as, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. When we say those words, that is worship. We're worshiping God and we're talking about the goodness and the greatness that is God. You know, there are benefits that come with being a child of the King. Imagine if you were a literally, physically, a child of a king. It's good to be the king, right? Some of you are too young to even know what that is referencing, but a little Mel Brooks for you. You see, there's been, Yoli, come on now. You were probably in the Philippines when that movie came out. There, there's benefits there. You know, if you're a child of the king, it comes with an expectation, but it comes with a benefit. And so why don't we walk around with a confident expectation of who God is? Do you know the biggest reason is one of two things. We either don't know what this said, or we haven't accepted it as truth. We'll walk around saying faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need to hear and hear and hear and hear and hear. What happens if we just hear it once and we accept it as truth? I mean, we talk about coming to God as, as with childlike faith. Because let's face it, kids will believe about anything you tell them. Right? I mean, I, I make up, my kids don't believe me in anything anymore because I've played this game for too long. But, but, I mean, I can convince my children of just about anything. Because why would I mislead them? And the answer is because it's fun. 
But they don't know that. I mean, they, they just believe it. What happened to the simple fact is like, well, God said it. I'm just going to believe it. And I'm going to walk in there. And I don't care what goes on around me. And I don't care what circumstances are happening. I believe what God says. But we're not there. You see, there's a confident expectation that comes from being a child of God is that God is going to perform in a certain way. When we talk about whatever happened to the power of God, the power of God's never left, it's never moved, it's never changed. We have. You see, David knew what the power of God was, and he knew what to expect. He knew that the benefits of that is that he healed all his diseases, that he forgave all his iniquity, that he lifted him up and carried him. We talked about several different things, and mainly getting into the different patterns in the atonement, but, but primarily is that there was an expectation of Messiah, right? We talked about the four miracles. I think I got the list up here. I'm not going to go through them all, but these were an expectation that when Messiah came, when the arrival of the Messiah, that these are the miracles that he would do to prove his Messiahship, because all of these could not be done by any individual. It had to be done by God and God alone. Only God had the power to cleanse the leper because God is the one to put that leprosy on him. Only God could cast out a deaf and dumb spirit because you had to be able to get the name of the spirit in order to cast it out. And if he can't speak and he can't hear, then he can't recite his name and thus they couldn't exercise it. And then, of course, if you were born with birth defects, it was a judgment on you for sin, either in your parents' life or in your own. And only God could remove that. And then certainly raising the dead after the third day with Lazarus, you see that on the fourth day. But they believe that the spirit of a man stayed there for three days. But if and when the Messiah came, that time had no barrier. So there was an expectation there. There was an expectation that the Messiah would come in a certain way and act a certain way. And of course he did. Now, were they ready for him in the way that he came? No. Why was that? Well, if you remember, and I've talked about this before, is that the Jews were waiting on two messiahs. Instead of one messiah coming twice, they had two messiahs that were coming once. You had the suffering servant, and then you had the reigning king. If you've ever wondered why the disciples kept looking at Jesus saying, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And when you do, can I sit at your right hand, and maybe I'll sit over here at your left hand? That's because they thought he's going to set up his kingdom. And guess what? We're in the inner circle. We're going to have some power. This is going to be sweet. That's what they were waiting on. But the teaching had gone forth that the suffering servant really wasn't a man, but it was the nation of Israel because of all that they had suffered. And yet all that they had suffered was a result of the decision they made in breaking the covenant. But regardless, is there was an expectation that was coming. A confident expectation. And that is how we approach God, is we have to be confident in what He says. So we've talked about several things. Number one being the atonement. We've looked at the idea of atonement, and what we're trying to determine is, is the atonement, which is the covering of sin, the removal of sin, Jesus took this on the cross, does healing have come into play with the atonement? Some say yes, some say no, some say I don't know. I'll tell you this right now as we're going to develop this more and more, is that it really doesn't matter if healing is in the atonement in the sense that healing is promised throughout Scripture. Whether it's in the atonement or not in the atonement, doesn't matter. Read your Bible, you see that God healed every person that asked Him to. So, atonement or not, throwing that aside doesn't matter. But we will get into the part of about what that was. The atonement in and of itself was the removal of sin, the covering. You saw it in the Old Testament with the sacrifices of the animals. It was the atoning sacrifice, the day of atonement when the high priest would go in there. He would first kill a lamb for himself, atoning for his own sin, and then he would intercede for the nation of Israel. And so at that point, they would now be cleansed for another year. It had a ceremonial thing that was going on. That was the atonement. Now, as the Israelites were in Egypt, God had told Abraham that your people would be in Egypt for 430 years. And they were to the very day. And that God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And a series of plagues went on. And as you recall, these plagues were not just abstract, random things. They were against the gods of Egypt. There are many gods of Egypt. I have that. I do. Here's a few of them. We talked about how all of these correspond with a different individual. There it is. That's nut. That's the sky god when the, when, when the uh, darkness came or, or when the hail came, excuse me. And all these different things. You know, you got happy there. That was the god of the Nile. I mean, this is just a few. All of these are, it says in Exodus in multiple places, is that there is a judgment upon the gods of Egypt culminating with 
Pharaoh being the ultimate god. Pharaoh was worshipped, and it was the firstborn on the last one. It's when we come into Passover. Israel's in Egypt. God's making a way. God goes after the firstborn. What did he call Israel? He called him my firstborn son. What was Jesus called? My firstborn son. It's a title. It's a position. So there's so much going on there that we miss out what's happening. And last week we got into Matthew chapter 4, if you recall, talking about how there's these patterns that develop as you go through the story. Why was Israel in Egypt to begin with? Well, they were brought there by Joseph. Joseph goes into Egypt, rises up to power. There's a famine in the land, and because Joseph was there, and because God had revealed to him what was to come, he made provisions, and that Israel comes up there, and they are spared by going to Egypt. Then you see Jesus being born. And he ends up being taken to Egypt. By whom? His father, Joseph. Then you watch Moses, which is a type of Christ. After he kills that that, uh, slave driver, he goes out. And what does God say? You can go back now because those who are after your life have died. And what happens? An angel appears to Joseph and says, You now may leave Egypt and go back to Israel because those who tried to kill your son are dead. That was Herod. You see these patterns develop time and time again. You can't miss them because they're so powerful. God does not work in mysterious ways. He works in predictable patterns. We can have a confident expectation of how he's going to move and what he's going to do. So then in Matthew chapter 4, you've got, and I didn't put this in there today, but I don't want to just quickly overlook it, but it's the four temptations, excuse me, three temptations. And in Matthew chapter 4, when he's talking about this, what happens? He's driven into the wilderness. Where were the Israelites? They were driven into the wilderness after they leave uh, Egypt. And he was there for how long? Forty days and forty nights. He's fasting. How long was Moses on the mountain? Forty days and forty nights. What was he up there doing? He's hearing the word of the Lord, getting ready to cut the covenant. The covenant between God and Israel. Jesus is out there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. I'm just going to read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is an interesting statement. Where does this verse come from? It comes out of Deuteronomy, but what is it in reference to? It was when they were complaining that God brought them out into the wilderness to starve, and what did he send? Bread from heaven. Jesus is referencing back. You see, they missed it. They weren't trusting God. God made a way. Here, Jesus is tempted. It's not called the temptation because he wasn't tempted. He was tempted. If you go 40 days and 40 nights without food, someone's offering you food, you're going to be pretty tempted by it. Some people go 40 minutes without food, and it's all they can do to just stay away. So he undoes spiritually what they did wrong. And then you get in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So here the devil is quoting scripture. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when was that said? That again goes back to Deuteronomy, hearkening to a time in Exodus because they needed water and they didn't. They didn't have it. And what did God do? He provided water for them. This quote out of Deuteronomy goes back to the time that they were in Marah where they threw the stick into the lake or the water, whatever it was. And it became sweet. It was no longer bitter. You have water from the rock. And then the last thing. Again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Why does that get said there? Because, again, the Israelites missed it. While Moses was on the mountain, they're like, I don't know what happened to him. We need to make a God, and Aaron does. He cuts a golden calf, takes all the earrings that was uh, in the children and the women of of Israel. Those were the slavery earrings. They were markers. They were ear tags, if you will. Creates this golden calf and says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. You see, that was such a big statement because what does God say time and time again? I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. 
And just like when I brought you out of Egypt, I will take you by the hand. You see, all of this was a precursor to the work that Jesus was going to do. Jesus comes on the scene, tempted in the very same way that the nation of Israel was, the firstborn son, and yet he gets it right. He spiritually undoes this stuff, if you will. Now, there's more to it than that, because the question comes down to, how did they get out of Egypt in the first place? It has to do with the Passover. We need to understand that. Now, I taught in depth on the Passover. In fact, all the feasts. There are seven feasts that the nation of Israel were given by God. Hanukkah is not one of them. That was adopted later. But the seven feasts that were given to them. Jesus, in his first coming, fulfilled the first three with Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And if I had time, I'd go into all of that. Then, of course, you know Shavuot, Feast of Pentecost, was the day that the Holy Spirit poured down. And then when he returns, he'll fulfill the fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are all prophetic. That's why we know that God works in these patterns. This is how he lays things out. But Passover, what is Passover? We need to understand this. So to do this today, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 12. Because you need to understand what's going on here. What we're trying to see is what happened to the power of God. And a part of what it is is that we do not know how to come to God. We just assume that we can come to God in our own way or anything like that. But there are patterns that we can learn from. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the be- your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So what's happening is God is changing the calendar. He's starting over. Now look at this calendar here. Here you can see this is going to be the month of Nisan. The month of Tishri was originally the first month. Don't worry about this stuff. That'll throw you off. That's our Gregorian calendar. has nothing to do with this. This was the Hebrew calendar. They still follow this today. They have a religious calendar, which is the one that we are talking about. That's got Nisan 1 as the first of the month, or first of the year. But they have the, um, cer- or not the ceremonial calendar, but the actual calendar that they follow for other things. And so that one starts down here. Now, You'll notice here, and I don't worry about all of this stuff in here because you get off in the weeds, but the bottom line here is in the month of Nisan is when the Passover is going to be. It is on the 14th of Nisan. So now God is changing their calendar. He's saying this month will be the beginning of months, the first month of the year to you. Things are changing. So look at verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You will take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So, on the 10th of the month, they select the lamb. Can't be any lamb. You can't just go out there and pick any old one you want. You can't have this entire herd of lambs and just say, well, that one doesn't look so strong. I'm going to take that one. This thing had to be without spot, without blemish, no broken bones, no bruising. If you know anything about lambs, when they are born and you move them, they shake and twitter and all that other kind of stuff. I mean, they get messed up. They get bruised. They get broken. It happens often. But this one had to be perfect. It couldn't have a hair out of place. You know, they talk about in the end times the red heifer, right? And there's been many times that... Israel said, oh, I think the red heifer has been born. There was one not long ago. I think it was in Texas. They sent all these rabbis over to inspect this thing. And while they were there, one gray hair popped out on this red heifer and therefore did not qualify. Think about that. Could you imagine if you as an individual had to have perfect hair, right? And one gray hair makes you disqualified. We'd all be done. Some of us have gone different paths and just slowly gotten rid of our hair. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just making sure he's awake. Listen, Stan's not here today, Jim. I'm just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the 10th day, they had to select the lamb. Again, can't just go pick anyone out. It had to be a male of the first year, so it's young, and it has to be without spot and blemish. Now, this lamb would be brought into the home 
for four days. Then, on the 14th, at what time? Twilight. They would kill the lamb. Why do they bring it into the home? Well, this is to be a sacrifice. If any of you have grown up on a farm, what are animals on a farm? They're livestock. You don't become emotionally attached to them, right? Yoli is a killer of all things small and furry and edible, right? A couple years ago, she brought me a goose to smoke. And I'm thinking, I bet that goose was cute for a while. This is why. Listen, I did not grow up on a farm. Animals are pets. I went coon hunting one time. Now, in my mind, I thought you shoot a coon, he just kind of lays over, close his eyes, and all of that. That's not what happened. That thing shook violently, and I'm just standing like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is sad. So, by taking this lamb and bringing it into your household with all your kids, what's going to happen? They're going to get attached to this thing. And what do you tell Junior? (laughs) Pet him now, because we're eating him later. I mean, that is what's going on. There's an attachment that comes in. So he's got to be spotless. He comes in. He's there the whole time. And during those four days is a time of examination. Because it's not just like they're teaching him to sit and roll over and play fetch. They're examining, making sure, because at any point in time, if they find a blemish, if he gets injured in the household, he no longer qualifies. I mean, you have to get this. So they're examining and making sure that this is something that is perfect. Has to be perfect. Perfect. And then at twilight, on the 14th, it's D-Day. It's over. Now, twilight to them is different than it is to us because you got to remember, their day went from sundown to sundown. Our goes from midnight to midnight. So essentially, at 6 p.m., roughly, that is when their day starts. So twilight, which is kind of the evening time, as far as the clock is concerned, would be roughly 3 p.m. or the ninth hour. So approximately at 3 p.m., they would go and they would kill this lamb. They would slit his throat and they would catch the blood. Okay? You guys with me so far? Aren't you glad we don't do this? All right, verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its heads with its legs and its entrails. That's all the guts, if you didn't know. Okay? So what they would do is they would split the lamb open and put it on a spigot. You know what a spigot is. So they would lay this thing out like this. They would take the entrails, bring it up, and wrap it around the head. Mmm. Who's hungry now? So they would roast it on fire. It was very specific on how they had to do it. And they would eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Okay? Now, I'll show you guys here in a minute, but the unleavened bread is something like matzah. And I brought some today. I'm going to show you guys the details in this momentarily. But I want you to picture Picture a big saltine. That's essentially what it is. So when they killed the lamb, what did they have to do? They had to take that blood and apply it to the doorpost. And you guys know where this is going because the angel of death is going to come through and is going to strike every firstborn unless there is an application of blood on the doorpost. They had to stay in the home. So once they've got the blood applied, the lamb's done cooking, then they had to consume the entirety of it. Or they had to, at the next day, take it out and burn it because it became a burnt offering. And they would take it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Now, if you've ever been through a Seder meal, we had a couple, of, uh, a couple years ago, we had one here. Our bitter herbs was horseradish, right? Now, some people like it. James eats it on his cornflakes. He likes it that much. But most of us like it sparingly, and some of us not at all. Um, those people are communists. Okay, verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the reason it's called Passover is because he's passing over the home. It all had to be eaten. It all had to be gone, and if they didn't eat it, they had to take it out the next day and burn it. Now, when does morning start for them? 
6 p.m. It's the next day. It's important that we understand that. It's the next day. So all of this goes on. These are just the details of getting it started. But you notice they had to have their belt on their waist and sandals on your feet and all that kind of stuff. Why is that? Because they needed to prepare to exodus. Get out of there. Because they are going to be released. Now, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So who are all these going against? The gods of Egypt. So Yahweh is going to go through here. He's going to strike both man and animal. doesn't matter. There's one way around it, and that is the blood of the Lamb. Because if you kill that lamb and you eat that lamb and you burn that lamb and you get all the leaven out of your house and you do everything else that they were supposed to do, but you forgot one step, it didn't matter. There was still judgment. It was the only the application of the blood. And the whole thing against the gods of Egypt is incredibly interesting because we, again, have to know this. Because in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. He's making a very clear statement. I am Yahweh. I am not one of your gods. I am greater than your gods. We were actually kind of discussing this a little bit this morning because if you read Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32, it talks about these gods. These are these fallen angels and all of that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, is he said, if they're here, I'm up here. I'm greater than all of them because he's bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And as you guys know, as you go through the rest of the story of the time going into the promised land, the exodus out of Egypt constantly gets brought up. It strikes fear in the heart of the Philistines because God brought them out of Egypt. So, verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague should not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood is a sign. Now, think about that for a moment. Signs. What are signs? Where do we get this? Well, look at this here. This is from the Hebrew word used here for sign. The word is oath, O-T-H. It's got many different meanings and is used throughout all the Old Testament. You can see what a difference. It's a mark, it's a banner, it's an emblem, it's a token, reference point, reminder, all of these kind of things. As we talked about weeks ago, is that as they would go somewhere, they would create an altar. And that altar was a reminder of the work that God had done for them. It's all throughout the Old Testament. They did it everywhere they, they went. When Joshua went through and took the people into the promised land, what did they do? They created an altar of stone, 12 stones, one in the river, one outside of the river. And when your children see this, remind them that I am the one that brought you through. It was a marker. It was a reminder of what they have done. There are many things that are signs. When you look at the covenant that God cut with Nova. He said that I will never again destroy the earth with water. And what sign did he give him? The rainbow. It was a sign that every time that God saw it and every time he saw it, it was a reminder that God will never again bring judgment in that way. There are all of these signs. A sign with the Mosaic Covenant. What was that? It was twofold. The first one was circumcision. That's what brought you into the covenant. But the other one was Sabbath-keeping. Keeping the Sabbath was a sign. He says, I've given you the Sabbath as a sign between you and me. So these signs are everywhere, but where is the first mention of this? Well, it's often a verse that gets, it gets misapplied to. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Look at this. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and for years. Now, we often read that and we're thinking, well, yeah, seasons like fall, winter, spring, summer. And there's truth to that. And for days and for years. But what were the lights in the firmament ultimately being the sun and the moon and the stars? They were for signs. The Hebrew word is oath. It is a marker. What that calendar that I showed you with all the feasts wrap around the idea of these signs. You see, God created them as signs to his people, knowing the timing of his coming, the timing of his redemption, all of this stuff. So this would be no other purpose. We also have learned that when you see things that happen in the heavenly, what was the star that led the, uh, the Magi to Jesus? It was a star. It was a light in the firmament as a sign to them. We have seen his star. 
They knew it was a sign. Who were the Magi? They were the people during the Babylonian captivity that Daniel happened to be in charge of. They were dream interpreters. You see, they knew all of this stuff. They had Torah because of Daniel. So this is very important. So this sign was a sign between the people and God. If the blood had been applied, then God would pass over their house and they would not be subject to the judgment. But what happens if they didn't apply the blood? Well, let's look at verse 14. So this day shall be a mo- to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generation in everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened, in all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. So there's a pattern being developed here. You have to follow this from the 14th to the 21st. Seven days. You've got the Feast of Passover. You've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which starts the very next day, and it culminates with the Feast of First Fruits. Now, what happens if they didn't apply the blood? Well, none of this would matter because they'd be dead, right? If we didn't apply the blood, Is it true today? Think about this. You were dead in your sins except for the application of the blood of the Lamb. We know that Jesus is ultimately the Passover Lamb. So this entire feast was what? This day shall be a memorial to you. Every time that they do it, they are doing it in remembrance of God's delivering them from Egypt. For all time. They still celebrate Passover today. Here in America, we celebrate Easter. But it's always at the time of Passover. It's around the same time. Um, We're not going to get off in the weeds of why we do it differently. But the bottom line is we need to understand what Passover was. Now let's look at verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out. Uh, of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and would not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads in worship. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now, again, this is a complete laying this thing out there of what's happening. This is the Passover, and we know the rest of the story, right? They, the, they do all of this stuff. They apply the blood. The angel of death comes, strikes all the firstborn. There's upcry in Egypt. Pharaoh releases them, sends them out, decides to chase after them. The Red Sea parts. They go across on dry land. Pharaoh goes in, Moses puts his hands down, the water crushes over them. I mean, they find evidence of this in the Red Sea all the time. But the bottom line is this, is that it was all a picture of going forward of the things of Christ. Jesus said to the the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, he said, I opened the scriptures and revealed to them that it was written about me. He says to the Pharisees, if you knew your scriptures, then you would recognize me. We see this again in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abib. Now, don't let that confuse you. That is Nisan. There's a couple different names that they go by, okay? And keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd and the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. 
I'll explain that in a minute. For you come out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. No leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice uh, the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight and at the going down of the sun at the time you come out of e- came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat at the place the Lord God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And the seventh day you shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Now, this is just another summary of the order of events, but it gives us one more piece of info. That where did the lamb have to be sacrificed? Outside the gates. So remember what they had. This is now they're in the time in the wilderness. They're going to continue this sacrifice and all of that. They have to be sacrificing outside of the gates. Now, when you get into the idea of this and Passover, it's called a Seder meal. S-E-D-E-R. We had that here a couple of years ago. We'll probably have one again next year, right around the time of Passover. If you've never experienced it, it is incredible. And you will sit there and you will see all the typologies like, How can anybody ever go through this meal and not see Jesus as the Messiah? Because there are believing Jews and even non-believing Jews that still do Passover, but they don't know what it is. Now, here's a picture of the Passover table. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here, and there's a lot of stuff that's been added, all right? But you can see it's kind of laid out here. You've got the pillow. You've got what's called the afikoman, where they put the matzah in. You've got, of course, the plate. And in this plate, you've got the bitter herbs. I I can't tell what that is. Uh, This is the heraset. I think that's the bitter herbs. Uh, The heraset, which is kind of this apple, cinnamony, honey thing. It's sweet. Then, of course, you've got some parsley. Now they've added an egg, and they've added a shank bone there, which wasn't there originally. Uh, And, of course, you've got the lamb. You've got glasses of wine. Wine is very important of this. You also have uh, the seat for uh, Elijah. Well, let's see, where's that at? One of these is for Elijah. I can't remember which one now. But all of this is going on, and they're doing this, and they're taking the matzah and and whatnot. But in the Passover, there are several different things that happen. It's a long process. If you run it start to finish, it could take up to three hours. It's, It's incredible. I don't have time to go into all the details of it, but when we do the Seder meal this coming year, y'all better be there. You don't want to miss it. If you were there last time, you saw it, um, and frankly, lamb is delicious, and there will be horseradish, just so you know, James. Okay, so, but in the Passover, during the meal, there are four cups that are mentioned, and this is important to understand. Here they are, the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of the kingdom. The cup of sanctification, we are brought out from the yoke of slavery. The cup of deliverance, we are freed by God's judgment of the enemy. These are all going back to the time of Egypt. The third one, the cup of redemption, we are redeemed by God. What does redeemed mean? We're purchased, right? And then the cup of the kingdom, we are taken as God's people. So, I'll go into this, but this is where it comes from. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name... Lord, which is Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. I have also heard their groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment, and I will take you as my people, and I will be your God then you should know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. Now, this is the four I will statements that correspond with those four cups. That's where they come from. Early in verse 3, it says, By by name Yahweh, I was not known to them. My name Yahweh, I was not known to them. My name Lord. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew them. But that word known comes from the Hebrew word yada. And it's not just like, oh, yeah, I kind of know that person. This talks about this intimate and personal, experiential knowing of God. While they were in Egypt, they knew who Yahweh was. But they did not have the relationship that Abraham, that Isaac, and Jacob had. And then he says in verse 7, then you shall know. Yada, same thing. 
So we've got the cup of sanctification. We're brought out from the yoke of slavery. Cup of deliverance. We are freed by God's judgment of the enemy. Cup of redemption. We are redeemed by God. And cup of the kingdom. We are taken as God's people. Four cups. Two are during the, fir- during the feast or during the meal. And two are after. The first two are taken as part of the meal. And then after the supper, the last two will be taken. Now, why am I giving you all of this information? Well, we need to understand what Passover is. First of all, this was all fulfilled by Jesus. Let me show you this in a little bit. First of all, in order to have a Passover, what do you got to have? How about a lamb? You need a lamb. Well, who was the lamb? Jesus. In John 1, 29, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would he make that statement? We always say it's like, oh, we just kind of say it without thinking about it, but what's he talking about there? Well, you need to understand who John was. John rightfully should have been high priest at this time, but he wasn't. He should have been, but he wasn't. John sees the very Lamb that they have been waiting for and declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Read Isaiah 52 and 53. The idea of this progressive revelation of the Passover and the other sacrifices going forward all kind of get more detailed and more detailed. And for in Isaiah 53, you realize that this sacrifice, this lamb, isn't a lamb at all. It is actually a person. And John identifies him for us. So we see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now this gets lost on us because we don't understand this in the background. But this is what's going on. Now, what happens with the lamb? When you select the lamb, what do you got to do? You select him on the 10th, but you bring him into your house for four days. Now, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. Okay? That's the same day that the lamb is chosen. He goes to the temple. He goes to the Mount of Olives. He has his final meal with his disciples during this time. Now, verse, Matthew 26, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these things that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up and be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the, uh, the people assembled of the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they're kind of putting this off. See, Jesus was in Bethany six days prior. He rolls in there in the evening, uh, twilight, on the sixth day. He stays overnight, and he goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Nisan 10. Is that a coincidence? Of course not. There's no such thing. Now, what happens during that four-day stretch? They're examining the lamb over and over and over again. They're making sure that he is spotless and he is perfect. Now, look at it. Go back and read it. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all the verses, but, but what's happening during those four days? You've got the Herodians, the, the, the sect of Jews that followed Herod. You've got all the chief priests and elders. You've got the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all grilling Jesus trying to find something that they can bring a charge against him for four days. Because as you know, he dies on Passover. So for four days, he's being grilled by everybody that they can think of. And they have to trump up a charge against him to take him to Pilate. And look at what Pilate says in John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. What does that mean? Roman praetorium is not a home that a Jew can be in, because a Jew could not be in the home of a Gentile. And thus, they would have been ceremonially unclean, would have had to mikvah and sacrifice to become cleansed again, and they would not be able to happen in time for them to celebrate Passover. That's why that's there. Verse 29, Pilate then went to them, so he comes out, and says, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? Now, think about that. He asked specifically, What charge are you bringing against him? Why did they deliver him to Pilate? Well, the Jews were free to worship God and obey their laws how they wanted, the one thing they couldn't do under Roman control was bring corporal punishment. They could not bring a man to death. 
they had to get the blessing of the emperor. And in this case, it's Pilate. Pilate comes out and says, okay, you brought this man to me. You say he's broken the laws. What law did he break? And what was their response? What do you think? We just brought him here for no reason. He obviously did something wrong. Just kill the guy. That's essentially what they're saying. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's what I, why that's there. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now let's pause there for a second. For this cause... I have come into this world. For this cause, I was born. What cause? What are we leading up to? The Passover sacrifice. You see, this is the reason that Jesus was here. It wasn't to help the poor. It wasn't to feed the hungry. This is the reason that he came. That everyone who is of the truth will hear his voice. What is the truth? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Look at verse 38. And then Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no fault in him at all. You see, this was the final inspection. Jesus was declared without spot, without blemish, no hair out of place. The pattern just keeps developing. What happens with the lamb at that point? had to be taken outside of the gates in order to be killed. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10, it says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What was the tabernacle? If you don't understand the book of Hebrews, he's making a, a correlation between the spiritual side of stuff and the natural side of stuff and how Jesus had fulfilled all of this. So the tabernacle was the place of worship that Moses built, that he created, that he saw a picture of in heaven. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So where was Jesus crucified? Outside the gate. Again, the pattern just continues and continues and continues. Now, what time was the Passover lamb killed? At twilight at 3 p.m. by the high priest. 3 p.m. was called the ninth hour because at 6 p.m. the clock started again. 12 hours, 12 hours, okay? Mark 15, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. What time did he die? The same time that the high priest and all the priests were killing the Passover lambs. Again, coincidence? I don't think so. You see, the high priest would make two offerings every single day. On the day, uh, uh, or on, on Passover, they would make three. So there's always this going on. But one thing about the lamb, while it was inspected, and all of that other stuff, no matter what happened, at any point in time, if you were taking him out, he'd passed inspection, you were taking him out, it's time to kill this thing, and you tripped, and you fell on top of him, and you broke him, he's no longer a Passover lamb. He had to be without broken bones, right? John chapter 19, verse 31 Therefore, because it was the preparation day, which was the day of getting ready for the Passover, 
that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, why did they break their legs? Well, when you're hanging on a cross, they did not die necessarily from blood loss. They died from suffocation. And they would use their legs to push themselves up so that they could get a breath of air. Well, if your leg's broken, you can't push yourself up. So they needed these guys off the cross because they had to get them in the ground before twilight because it was a high holy day going into this Passover. Now, so they come through. They can't break Jesus' leg. If they broke his legs, what happens? He doesn't fit the pattern of the Passover lamb. One thing that would happen at the high priest that when he would kill the lamb, he would cut his neck, he would say, tetelestai. Remember what tetelestai means? It is finished. What did Jesus say on the cross? He said, it is finished. You see, all the patterns, all of these things are completely fulfilled in Jesus. Every little detail is there. We miss it because we don't know these. So again, going back to the four cups and that of Passover. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of the kingdom. We also have in here that we haven't talked about yet, the matzah. They would take three pieces of matzah, put it in the afikoma, and they would put it in, and there'd be one in the middle. And when they brought out the one, it always was the one in the middle. Now, where was Jesus? He was in the middle. He was between two thieves. Okay? And this matzah had to be very, very specific in how it was made. First of all, this is interesting. If any of you have ever tried this, you know it's not that great. It's not, there's one reason you have matzah. What is that? Passover. Otherwise, you ain't eating this stuff because it's nasty. I just happened to notice here as I was looking at this, this says not for Passover. So I'm not sure who's buying this because this is gross. But anyway... When matzah is made, it is made very specifically. You notice that it's got dark edges and it's burnt. It has to have that burnt. It has to. It also has lines in it and holes. If you hold it up to light, you can see through it. You probably can't, but I can. And when they would come in here, they would break this matzah like that, and then they would put part of it and they would hide it in the house, and the children would go and it would be this game and they got to go and find it. And the other part they'd put back in the afikoman and they'd eventually partake of it. But what was special about this is that this had to be unleavened, it had to have the brown stripes, and it had to have the holes in it, had to be pierced. Why is that? Ask a Jew, they don't know, we just have to do it. But what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. And when he talks about this, he hearkens back to a time when uh, manna from heaven and all of this stuff was coming down, that he prepared, man should not live by bread alone. Okay, It had to be unleavened. Why? Leaven puffs up. Leaven is always used as a representation of sin. So this matzah has to be without leaven or without sin. And when it is broken, it is given. Now this, we'll get into this later about how the bread and healing, the breaking of the body and healing come together as one thing. And we'll get into that another day. But the bottom line is this, is that this bread was a representation of Christ. There was no leaven in it. Remember what happens after the day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what they had to eat. And so this would be broken, my body, which is broken for you, take eat in remembrance of me. Right? Very important. It had stripes and it had holes. Was Jesus pierced? Yes, he was. Was he striped? Yes, he was. Because by his stripes... You are healed. You guys seen this picture? You guys seen why? This is all there. That's what I'm telling you. If you've never sat through a Seder meal, you will sit there and wonder, like, how do they not see this? Because it's there. It's all right there. So from this, they're, of course, they're partaking of the wine. They're partaking of the cups. And we have the two cups that are drank before the Passover itself and two that are after, like during the meal and after the meal. The cup of sanctification and the cup of deliverance. We were brought out from the yoke of slavery and we are freed by God's judgment of the enemy. Those two things happened while they were in Egypt. But the cup of redemption that we are redeemed by God, at what point were they redeemed? The blood of the Lamb and the judgment of God coming corresponding with one another released them. They have now been purchased. They had Pharaoh's blessing to leave. God could not just pull them out. Pharaoh had to do it on his own accord. 
and then, of course, the cup of the kingdom. Now, in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, this is when Jesus is sitting and eating his final Passover. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him, and they said to him, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, you notice that Jesus just said, it will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God, right? So there is a fulfilling of this Passover, right? Jesus said that, not Chris. Those are his words. So is this just some ceremony that they randomly do? No. Jesus said it will be fulfilled. Now, in verse 17, it says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's a future fulfillment, right? Has the kingdom of God come yet? No. But what would happen is during these times, they would take that wine and they would say, Blessed are you, O God, who brings forth fruit from the vine. And they would take and partake. It was, it's called the halal blessing. They, they say that uh, as part of the service and stuff. And there's a bunch of other stuff going into this. But he doesn't drink the third or the fourth cup until later. Now watch. And verse 19, he says that he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We talked about that, right? Okay. So you have the body of Christ, a separate entity. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, you notice it says after supper. You notice the first two didn't mention that. It just talks about them drinking it. But specifically after supper. What is the cup after supper? It's the cup of redemption. We are redeemed by God. Jesus does not drink this cup. Then, you go to Luke chapter 22 and verse 42. Well, I'll start in 39. It says, coming out, so this is immediately following. We're just a few verses ahead. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter the temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What cup? is he talking about? These are not colorful language. He's saying, take the cup of redemption from me. He knows what he's about to go through because his blood has to be poured out. When they drink the, the, the cup of wine and the third cup after supper, it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So you have that going on. God's will was done with Jesus on the cross. The blood of the lamb had to be poured out and applied, or if it was of no avail. What is the last cup? You see that in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's called the cup of the kingdom. The fourth cup has yet to be drank. So there's a final fulfillment coming. Now, Jesus goes through all of this, and you guys see the picture and the typology and how all of this stuff is coming in. But in John chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when he, Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, to die. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He drank of the sour wine. All of this is a picture of Christ. All of it. From the very beginning. All of it took place as a picture of Christ. The Jews today, waiting on Messiah, still celebrate the Passover. But in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, look at this one more time. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you used to take a bunch of what? Hyssop. The same stuff that happened to be put up to Jesus' mouth. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So 
you have pictures going. You've got Moses, which was a type of Christ. He was a Messiah. He was a delivering figure. You've got Egypt, which, of course, is of this world. You've got Pharaoh, you could say, is a picture of Satan. We know what leaven is. It's a picture of sin. But ultimately, the lamb is the redeemer. It's the blood of the lamb that redeems us. And judgment is going to be struck on those who do not have the application of the blood. Remember, it doesn't matter that they killed it. It doesn't matter that they ate it. They had to put it on the doorpost. And this is the picture we often see when we do this. You get them with this little bowl, and they're probably stirring it up, getting it good and painted, and they're putting a couple of little dots. And that's cute, except it doesn't say put some dots on the lintel and the doorpost. It says to strike it. When you strike something, you hit it hard. Right? So imagine they're taking that in, and he strikes both. It probably looked a lot more like this. Now, obviously, that's not an actual photo. We weren't there. But I don't know how you strike something and not get blood running down and blood going across. You see, this was all laid out from the beginning. You notice what John said in, or Jesus said in John chapter 10? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. They had to stay inside the door that the lamb's blood was applied on. Why does this matter? Remember, they went through all of this to bring forth the covenant that David talked about in Psalm 103 about the benefits of God. It's ultimately a part of that Mosaic covenant that if you'll obey my commandments, I will take away sickness from you and I will not put the plagues of Egypt on you. And we know they didn't do it. They didn't obey his commandments. But why did the Passover lamb in Jesus come to the cross? A new covenant that I will give you. Not like the one with your fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. The new covenant in his blood is based on better promises. Could one of those be healed? We'll get into that next week.